Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 31st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Caleb Brown. Caleb is the founder of New Planner Recruiting, a recruiting firm that, as the name implies, focuses specifically on hiring newer associate-level financial planners. What's unique about Caleb's business, though, is the way that he vets prospective financial planners to determine whether they're likely to be successful in the business in the future, with a strong focus not on their technical skills, but the initiative and effort that they put into the process of trying to get hired through his recruiting business in the first place. Because the reality is that you can train a lot of financial planning skills, but it's almost impossible to teach someone to have that go-getter kind of attitude that it really takes to succeed as a financial advisor. So in this episode, Caleb talks at length about what issues you should consider in the hiring process for a prospective new advisor, the role of using various types of uh, personality and other assessment tools to evaluate potential hires, what you should and frankly shouldn't expect your new hire to do and bring to the table to make the business more successful, and what the going rate salary is that you have to pay as an advisory firm to get quality talent these days. And be certain to listen to the end where Caleb talks about his own tips on how to work through the inevitable difficult times that arise as an entrepreneur and how an executive coach has helped him to keep his focus. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Caleb Brown. Welcome, Caleb Brown, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on the podcast because I think one of the biggest single transition points for most advisor careers is when you first decide to hire an, an associate planner, like a, a a second advisor that's gonna gonna sit second chair next to you, and 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 for the first time, you're not the only advisor who's interacting with your clients anymore. And and I know for a lot of advisors, this is really actually somewhat terrifying because clients pay us a lot of money. We try to deliver good value for that money, but losing even just one valuable client can hurt a lot, which makes it really scary to hire an associate advisor who's eventually going to start interacting with your clients and and. Potentially, if they do something knuckleheaded, could could lose you a client. But obviously, on the other hand, the the reality is we're all constrained to the you know, same number of hours in a day, in a week, in a, in a year, which means there's only so many clients that any one advisor can handle. And, and beyond that point, you you hit capacity and you stop growing. And the, and the only ways you grow from there are you either have to get wealthier clients who pay you more than your current clients so you can make more money from the same number of clients – or you have to begin to hire people and, and and actually build an advisory business that goes beyond you as an advisor. And and that's a it's a tough crossroads, I think, for almost anybody when when they're when they're hitting that transition point and and you have to acknowledge or accept that that other advisors are going to start interacting with quote your clients for the future of your business. Now you, Caleb, you actually run a recruiting business aptly called New Planner Recruiting. And and I, I suppose for the interest and full disclosure for everyone listening, I should say we run a business since I'm Caleb's partner in 
new plan of recruiting, but but I you know I mean you're you're the one that that runs the day to day execution of the recruiting business with a with a four person team of your own, and and hire literally dozens of associate planners every year. So I, I was excited to have you on because I, I think there are few people in the country who are really more qualified to talk about the dynamics of how you hire good associate planners and evaluate them, vet them, and bring them in your business than you because you do this for a living. So as a starting point, why don't you just tell us a little bit about new planner recruiting? I mean, like, what do you what do you do? What does the businesses exist today? Yeah, essentially, it's an outsourced hiring solution for independent financial planning firms nationwide. So uh, a firm owner, CFP firm owner can call me and say, look, I'm thinking about hiring someone. I know it's time intensive. I know it takes a specific skill set that I really don't have. And quite frankly, I just don't enjoy doing it. Can you handle this for me? And they can, with one phone call, basically dump everything on to me and my team, very similarly to what their clients do to them. You know, their financial planning, hey, we don't want to do this. We're smart and educated, but we want to hire a planner and pay them a fee to do this because they're frankly going to do a better job. So our, our value proposition is is very similar. But yeah, just we're focused on the, uh, it's not executive search. Okay. So we're we're focused on the entry level CFP types. All of our people are CFPs are pursuing a certified financial planner designation at, at some stage. Some of them are enrolled in the courses. Some of them have passed the exam or are waiting for the experience, but they all want to work their way up to a, a lead or senior advisor. Most of them are going to be entering in at the associate planner level. So that zero to five year. So right now it's really just a niche business with really one type of placement and one type of firm. And so can you talk a little bit more about that that type of firm? And you said independent financial planning firm. I feel like there's a couple hundred thousand advisors out there that say, I'm a financial planner and I'm I'm either independent because I'm an independent broker dealer, I'm independent because I'm an independent RIA. Like, How do you you frame what independent financial planner means in, in terms of who you work with? Yeah, so most of our people are going to be fee-only or fee-based, and they're going to be with some sort of independent broker-dealer. You know, anywhere from size-wise, I mean, our smallest firm is probably $40 million in assets, you know, for about 400000 revenue, and we help them bring in usually their first hire, like you were talking about at the, the top of the show. And I mean, that boy, that's a fun engagement. I mean, you talk about a lot of pressure and a, a lot of risk on both sides, but that's very exciting. And then our biggest firm's probably in the $7 billion range. So, you know, different dynamics, different different issues there, just a lot bigger. But our average client is probably in the 200 to $500 million range. So they're growing, they've got a nice asset base, anywhere from between two and $5 million. But they're not big enough to have, you know, a bunch of people on staff to do this. And they might hire one person or two people every every year and like to be able just to say, look, we don't have to have someone here that we're paying their health insurance and we're doing this and doing a retirement match. We can just call new plan or recruiting whenever we need them kind of on demand. And that works out for them. I'm curious, the larger end, though, because you mentioned you've got larger multi-billion dollar firms in there, which... Frankly, some of those, I mean, they they do have the size to have a full time HR person who can, you know, uh, post job ads and screen candidates and do things like that. I'm curious what you find. Like, why do large firms that already can ha- staff the resources to do this still end out hiring you? Is is that about like 
how you do the work, how you find the candidates, something else about the engagement? I think a lot of it boil. You're right. There are the bigger firms have dedicated, you know, non-advisor sort of HR operation staff. But I think it comes down to to two points. And first is our screening process that we developed. So we have a multi-stage screening process that even these bigger firms, some of them have it in place, but a lot of times it's just disjoint. Like, hey, we're going to give a personality test, or we're going to have you know, this person interview with this team and we're going to take them to lunch. And it's just a little bit kind of ad hoc and, and shoot from the hip. And there's not a lot of financial planning specific exercises. I mean, they might give them a case study or have them do an Excel thing, but it's not, it's not all put together. So we can bring that to the table. So that when the candidates deal with us, they've got to go through multiple stages to one demonstrate their competency, but also really at the, at the, the core of it is to demonstrate effort. That's what we're looking for, for people to demonstrate effort. And if they can do that, and they can even just do reasonably well on some of these assessments, you know, they have a good chance of getting in front of one of our clients. And the second piece is, I think, just the sourcing. I mean, it's, it's tough out there. You know, you and I talk about this a lot. And, and if, I mean, if you read any of the headlines, it's just, we just don't have a lot of people that think this is an exciting career, which gives me nightmares and night sweat, keeps me up at night. Running out of people who want to come into the business is not good if your job is hiring people coming into the business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm on a one-man mission, it seems like, to try to you know, encourage these career changers and these you know, millennials, you know, and, and even the, the, the genera- you know, Gen Z, even the generations after the millennials to try to get them interested in, in financial planning. So they see it as an exciting and an established and a reputable profession, much like accounting law and medicine. And, and most of these firms, I mean, even if they, they can, you know, they have, you know, an admin assistant or, or operations, an HR person, you know, that they're paying 50 grand a year to, and that person's posting jobs and doing resumes, but they haven't been an advisor. They're not a CFP. And that's one of the benefits that we have. I have been in the, I am a CFP and I've been in the position that we, that we uh, hire for. And then pretty much everybody in our team has either been in a firm, has gotten a, a financial planning education or some way in shape or form affiliated with the profession. So it's not like we're just, you know, recruiting for positions that we don't know anything about. And I think a lot of your sort of generalist HR people they just have a list of questions, you know, and they're sort of going through and, you know, they're going to administer some tests and, and things, but they just, they don't, they can't do a nationwide extensive search like we can just because even if they have four or five people, they've got other things to do. They got payroll to process for their, you know, hundred and hundred employees. Whereas, and also too, most of their stuff's going to be inbound, you know, Hey, we're going to post job. And I, and I hope, you know, we, I hope we kind of, you know, throw our line out there and I hope somebody bites. Whereas our firm, you know, we do some outbound stuff, you know, we're going to, we're going to reach out and try to uncover some rocks and, you know, look for some of those passive candidates in, in certain markets and in certain in- instances. And, and again, the, your, your $50,000, you know, HR person is once they get that CFP with five years on the f- experience on the phone, they're not really going to know what's going to be appealing to that person and how to get them to get be interested in their job. At least that's our experience. So I'm curious how, how you look at the process of vetting good folks. You know, you said a lot of firms like just, they, they list some job ads, you go to some of the popular websites, maybe use a couple of industry sites. You get a bunch of resumes back. You ask a couple of questions and, and you pick someone that sounds promising. So 
what is your evaluation and vetting process look like? So it, it, you're, you're certainly implying here you do something differently than just field a couple of questions and kind of decide who's, who's promising. So what, what does that vetting process look like for new planner recruiting? You got it. So, you know, initial contact, you know, we get, we either find a resume or a resume is sent to us. We'll do a couple second, you know, probably 20 second review of that. And then if that, you know, look, if, if there's some characteristics on there and what I look for is really just what have they done in an outside of school or outside of work, you know, what kind of commitment or to their career or passion for the profession, their chosen profession, have they demonstrated? And if they've done that and, you know, they've got the education or they're in the right location, you know, approximate salary range, then we'll, we'll talk to them. So, you know, we may get a hundred resumes for one job. And we might talk to 10 people, you know, just from sort of the resume cut. You know, a lot of firm, you know, we, we do look at like, especially for students, grade point average. Uh, I think a lot of firm owners are really hung up on that, especially the baby boomer types. You know, they only want a 4.0 GPA. We've actually found that that's not as uh, good a, a predictor of success as, as they might think. They don't like to hear that from me because it's an easy thing to screen for. Okay, you just like, hey, look, we want right. this Just look at the resumes and yeah. chuck all the ones that don't have a 4.0 or nearly. And, and let me give, give you an example of why that, because I know some people are listening, like, they're going to get really irritated because that's their recruiting process. Would you rather have the 4.0 student who never worked, whose family or someone paid for everything, they got to sleep all day before their exams, they crammed for their exams, they, they, they you know, got 100 and scored perfect, or... The person who couldn't afford to buy any books, okay, had to work from midnight to six, stocking shelves, you know, and was, was, was taking out loans, and they had a 2.75 GPA, okay? So maybe they had also, uh, maybe they were a single parent, okay? We've had some of those types of Those types of people, I mean, they're just, when I talk to them, I can see the difference in somebody that's maybe just been, hey, I'm just focused on getting good grades and they don't have as well-rounded background. The positions that I'm putting them in, this is what I tell them. I'm saying, look, I'm putting you into controlled chaos. I don't care how big the firm is, how structured it is. So someone who's been, you know, running all over the place and demonstrating this, just being able to, you know, handle this control chaos, they tend to do better. That does not mean somebody with a 4.0 is a bad candidate. That's not what I'm trying to get across. And some people are going to take it that way. But I'm just saying that's not the only factor. So, you know, once once you get past that, and people need to have a minimum level of competency, and absolutely. But at the end of the day, guys, I mean, what we do as financial planners is not advanced chemistry. It's not advanced physics or mathematics or anything like that. It's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward, you know, blocking and tackling, you know, a lot of these basic personal financial issues. Now, as someone's situation gets more complex, obviously a higher skill level is necessary. But if anybody can read, my thought is anybody can read and get through a, you know, a college program, they should be able to, you know, handle this. And, and we have a cognitive piece in our screening. So someone gets their resume review, they'll have a talk with one of our recruiters. And the way that works is, you know, we'll spend about 15 to 30 minutes on the phone with them. And have they researched the job that they're looking for? Can they articulate clearly what type of value proposition they're going to bring? Are they members of FPA? Are they members of NAPFA? Have they been to conferences? Where are they in the CFP process? Those things, all those things. I mean, essentially, 
they have to convince me and my team or whoever the recruiter is that's handling that, that they are serious. You know, they're serious about this because if they're not, you know, once we start explaining the screening process and probably how much time it's going to take, you know, they're going to bail out anyway. So assuming that goes well and they're excited and they're saying, yeah, 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 we want to go forward because, you know, it's not really us on. I mean, we certainly describe the position. Here's the benefits. Here's what's going on. But they really have to sell us on you know, the, the type of people I'm looking for are similar to me when I was coming out of school. Now, I was not going to be denied entry into the profession. I was not, I was not going to be stopped. And I say that, and it's, it, I was trying to get an internship in 2001. I was trying to get a full-time job in 2002, and those were not plenty, they were not available. So I got told no a lot, and, but finally just hung in there long enough, and someone said, man, I, you know, this guy's probably not the best candidate, but I want the tenacity and just sort of the determination because I want him in here fighting for my clients. And that ended up working out for him and working out for me. So now the, the tides have changed now. I mean, candidates essentially don't have to do anything right now. They have to do nothing, exhibit zero effort to get job offers. So it makes what we do a little difficult because, I just said we're over here trying to make them convince, you know, convince us that they're, you know, they should, they're worthy. And, you know, some of the, some of the candidates are like, well, screw you guys. I got four or five job offers over here and I didn't have to do anything. And you know what my answer to that is? That is fine because if you cannot go through our little screening process and spend the time and you're not curious about how you're going to do, you don't have the natural curiosity about how you're going to do on our little exercises. You are not ever going to make it one of our client firms. You will be annihilated in the first month. Okay, so assuming they get into the screening portal, which is tough to do with our firm, they have to do a, uh, a little mini cognitive assessment. So it's, we call it the mini CFP exam. It's 30 multiple choice questions, five-time value of money, and there's a couple client essays that they have to respond to an email. And for anyone who's, run, who's wondering, I wrote that mini CFP assessment. I actually wrote it originally for our advisory firm we were doing hiring at Pinnacle Advisory Group and then we adapted into the into the recruiting business as well. It's designed to be hard. It's designed to be hard because the the challenge that we found, kind of similar to the the point, Caleb, that you were making, you know, if 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 you tend to screen on higher grade point things like higher grade point average and, and people who are reasonable at at reasonably good at book smarts and memorizing stuff, if you give them basic CFP questions, uh they're they're gonna they're gonna nail most of them because I mean the if you can get good grades and you've been through the CFP coursework you've learned the book knowledge enough that you should be able to do okay and and I, we had an early version of the exam and like you know it was thirty questions and everyone got between twenty six and twenty nine of them right and and it didn't really help screen anyone because they all got approximately similar scores and basically. The difference between a 26 and a 28 was just whether uh, I happened to ask a question or two that fit their background because they were a little more tax tilted and I asked a few more tax questions, they got them right. We deliberately made it really hard and have to apologize in advance for candidates who take it because it it, it kind of kicks their butt. But we, you know, I, I made something where the average score was going to be about a 70 and a lot of people get under 50% of them right. And now when we give that assessment tool and someone gets a 90 plus, you know they have real critical thinking skills and have really mastered the material. 
because we make the tool deliberately difficult to try to screen out who just has book knowledge but can't actually figure out how to apply it and who actually understands the material to the point that they can apply it to hypothetical client situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is, it is tough and it's timed. And that's so we're able to measure can they manage their time? How do they react under pressure? Do they have a minimum level of competency? Can they write well? Can they formulate response? And and again, it's 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 all client stuff. I mean, it's a response, you know, the emails that we have, I mean, they were questions that, you know, you guys had gotten, you know, clients had actually emailed in. So it's great. And that tells us a lot. If they make it past that, then they will do uh we have a Col we use Colby. I'm Colby certified out of Phoenix, Colby Corp. I believe in that because that's the conative part of the mind. I mean everybody is focused on the affective, which is your personality and your introversion and extroversion, and then also focused on the cognitive. So you'll see a lot of firms give a wonder lick or give an IQ test and you know, it's, I mean, again, back to sort of what everybody does and, you know, all the psychology folks, I mean, their, their suggestions are, look, guys, just hire the smartest person you can find and just get them in there and they'll figure it out. And for most firms and for most industries, that is correct. The people with superior cognitive ability can just do that. However, there does have to be a certain level of training in there and, we all know that the RIA space is not the leader in terms of training. So I always caution firm owners when they just, you know, sort of blow out of the gates on, well, I found this person who's a genius. And I was like, that's great. They're going to be able to figure a lot of stuff out, but you need to make sure you've got, you know, some level of training, not just kind of throwing them out there. And I think most, most would agree with that. So Colby, mini CFP, then we have them, we give them a little case study. Okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty simple. No small business owner, no, no stock options or anything, but just kind of a retired couple million dollar retired couple and, and, and see if their retirement plan will work. Do they have enough assets to retire? And if not, how are you going to communicate that to them? And if they do, how are you going to communicate that to them? And then they have to respond to five or six questions that the client, me, asked about their plan. So it's not only entering data and creating reports, but it's also extrapolating the important figures out of there and relaying those to the clients. Because, I mean, again, it's the people in this business that have success. It's not the person that has the IRS tax code memorized. That's not really the person that has success. The person that has success in this business is somebody who can sit down with somebody and take these complex, you know, tax issues or whatever and convey them and get the client to take action. I mean, that's how you're graded as a planner. And this is what I tell all the candidates. It's if you will be successful if you can learn, develop a skill or if you have it now or learn it to, where you can sit down in front of the Smiths and they don't know you. And after 30 minutes, they're revealing things to you. They've dropped their guard. They're comfortable with you. They want to pay you a fee. There's very few people that have that ability. And if you do, in our profession, the sky's the limit. You know, one of the things I used to use when I was director of financial planning hiring for Pinnacle, in addition to giving them the assessment exam to, to kind of evaluate critical thinking skills, I would give them a basically a communication test, which was, you know, a, a written exercise. And I would give people two or three scenarios to work through, like your client calls or sends you a, a, an email that says, I've got, you know, such and such a situation, write the email that you would send in response to the client. And the primary ex the one that we would push at them was, you know, your client just contacted you, their mother passed away, They've inherited about three hundred thousand dollars. 
They have a $300,000 mortgage on their half million dollar home, and they're wondering whether they should use the inheritance to pay off the mortgage, which is, you know, one of those classic, like, how do you explain the concept of return of the portfolio versus the cost of the debt and, you know, the tax deductibility of the mortgage and the taxability of the portfolio. And like, we would kind of check through all those technical things. But the two primary things actually that I would watch for when I would give that assessment, number one is when I say send the le- send the message back to, you know, write the email you would write to the client in response to this, is it actually formatted like proper professional looking communication? Do you use paragraphs? Does it say dear client and end with, you know, sincerely yours or whatever your your signature is? Just can they can they write like a professional? And the number one thing that we actually would grade for in that assessment is that the opening of that letter, that email to the client better start out with, dear client, I'm so sorry to hear that your mother passed away. The real thing we were trying to assess for in that was not just do you have the ability to explain a technical issue of pay off the mortgage or or keep the inheritance and invest it. It was do you have the the natural empathy to realize that when someone says, my mom passed away and I'm trying to figure out what to do with their inheritance, the first thing you should say is, I'm really sorry for your loss because your mom passed away. And that's a really sad thing that deserves to be acknowledged before we get into all this technical financial stuff to answer the question that you posed. And and just the, to look at someone's ability to to naturally spot those opportunities for empathy and rapport because that's really hard to teach like if you if you're pretty smart on critical thinking I can teach you how to do a mortgage analysis if you don't have the natural relationship skills to realize that when someone says their their mother passed away that you need to connect with them for a moment about that before you talk about all the technical stuff that's much harder to teach people Absolutely. And I agree completely. Another instance is, you know, one t- a lot of times we'll get resumes from people that say, like, I was a fundraiser or something in college and I had to call, you know, rich alumni and try to solicit donations. And whenever I see something like that on a resume, I mean, because with me, it's almost like every interview is, is, is different because I'm picking things out and making them prove things. And I put them on the spot, man. We go there. All right. I'm the alumni. Pitch me. And for some of these candidates, it's been two, three, four, maybe, maybe five years since they've done that. And just, you know, put them on, putting them on the spot to see how they do. I mean, that tells you, you know, a lot about the, the person. And then another one. We, can they can they really drop into that pitch just like that because they've actually done it over and over again or or not? It, it gets really clear really fast whether they they were seriously doing those calls and really trying to solicit the alumni when you when you say like, OK, so. Give me an example how that conversation goes. Ring, ring. I said, hello. What do you do next? Yeah. I mean, it's another thing too, is just, you know, on the personality side, you know, just, you know, just how humble are they? And we had one candidate on the phone we were interviewing and, you know, this person was like the world champion or whatever finalist or whatever in ballroom dancing, had that on the very bottom of their resume. We, we did an initial interview, didn't ask anything about it went through the entire screening process, that person never even brought it up, never even brought it up. And, you know, I asked her you know, about it. I'm like, well, tell me about this. 
you know, I mean, so instead of blasting like, hey, I'm so good, I'm doing it. It's a little thing, but it tells you a lot about these people and just how to, and that's what we do on our screening process. We have the time and the infrastructure and the resources to, to put a candidate in a system and, wa- and just see how they handle it. We just sit back and we have all these different little data points that by themselves, like your traditional firm, oh, I heard Caleb Brown say I need to give a, you know, this and, and this, and I heard somebody else, you know, do, say I need to give a, you know, this, te- this task or something, and they just sort of do that. Or, Man, I'm in love with this candidate, but I know I need to give them something, and okay, I got them that. The results say they're horrible, but I'm going to hire them anyways. I mean, there's a lot of that going on, but we're able to sit back there and just watch how quickly they navigate through the system is their work client ready? That's what I compare these people's work to, the standard. It's a high standard. I mean, if I put you in a firm, could we send this to the client? If the answer is no, here's what you need to do to improve. And the, the candidates that, that we found that, again, have the, the – it's, it's all about attitude. It's like, hey, thank you so much for this feedback. I had no idea. What else can I do to be a better candidate? Versus some of the, some of the candidates that we talk to, that's not their approach. It's like, why am I having to go through this to get an interview? I don't really need the feedback. This is kind of you know silly. It's like not a fit. You know, you aren't a fit. <laughs> you look great on paper, and I'm sure my client would love to interview you, and they probably would hire you because you can interview quite well. But you are not going to make it long term. So, can you talk about that a little bit more from the from maybe the candidates end a little? Because I'm sure we have a few folks that are maybe younger and a little earlier in their careers. And of course, we're basically talking about a whole bunch of our like tricks of the assessment process as we go through this. So maybe a few people have a chance to to do a little better as they go through the system. But what is your advice to candidates, people that are coming in and looking for new financial planner opportunities? How does a candidate make themselves better positioned to actually get hired and, and survive the the new planner recruiting screening process? Yeah, there's really two types of candidates out there. There, there's one that says, "Hey, Kale, I'm thinking about getting. I'm, I'm looking. You know, I'm I'm thinking about getting into financial planning, or I'm, I want to. I want. I'm looking for a job. Okay, I'm looking for a job. You know, can you help me, or or what can I do to be a better candidate? And then the other type of candidate is, Hey, Caleb, here here I've researched. I've here's the game plan that I've come up with, and here's what I think I want. I need to be doing." What feedback do you have for me on this? And do I need to be doing anything else? The latter is the, the more preferable, I, I feel like. Even though we have a lot of people in the first category, and that's fine. We can help them too. But it's like, are you going to invest in your own success? I mean, that's and, – and I try to – I mean, I've seen this with my own team and just my over my own career too. When I went to my bosses and said, hey, I need help with this. Can you help me? It's like I was trying to put it all on them versus when these candidates come back and say, look, here's the game plan or my team that works with me, here's, here's the problem, but here's what we're going to do and here's our, our game plan to fix it. And in the candidate perspective, here's what I think I should be doing to be a better candidate. That, those people are going to be successful. I mean, they have, they've, we've placed them and they've done very, very well. They may not have had the best GPA. They may not have done the best on our screening process, but man, just the fact that they're going there and it's, they have the awareness they have the emotional intelligence. And if someone has that, and you can get that through, you know, you can screen that out through, you know, interviews and some, some other testing that, that we may talk about later. But that's really what we're looking for. I mean, I tell the people all the time, I don't need, I mean, having a CFP, Series 65, 7, some internships, some software knowledge is all really good. 
But the, the intangibles is where it is. I need commitment to your career. Okay, I'm going to, hey, you know what? I'm not going to wait around for someone to tell me that I need to go over here and get my Series 65 because I don't have to be sponsored and I'm looking at a lot of fee-only firms. I'm going to pay the fee. I'm going to register for it. Hey, I'm going to go over here. You know, I keep hearing about all these personality assessments. I'm going to go get a disc on myself. I'm going to do a new strengths finder. I'm going to go do Colby. I'm not going to wait someone wait around. All right, so commitment to their career, passion for the profession. I'm going to be, I'm going to be an FPA member. You know, I joined the FPA when I was 20 years old in, in college and I'm still, still a member. And when I get people on the phone, they're like, well, I don't, I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't really, I don't really relate to that. <laughs> it's like, no, if I can do it, and I didn't have any money either. Uh, you, you can too. Being a part of the profession, I'm going to conferences. I'm, hey, I volunteered on, on the career development committee. I mean, if you're looking for a job, they're plentiful right now, but if you're having trouble, get on the career development committee. All the job opportunities are going to come through the career development director. Typically, you're going to get first pick. Yeah, of your local FPA chapter. Join join the organization, join the committee for career development, and just literally get first look at, at whatever hiring is going. I guess if your chapter has one, I know not, not quite all the chapters have a career development committee, but a lot of them do. So yeah, just literally put yourself right next to where all the hiring is happening locally. Yeah, so commitment to the career, passion for the profession, I think sense of urgency. I mean, that's one thing that I get from my clients all the time, and I see it here in my own business. And you can tell pretty quickly when someone has the attitude of, I have got to get this done right now or the, we're going out of business. We are going to lose the client and we're going out of business. Okay, that's the type of mentality. That's the sense of urgency right there. It's like, and you know, you're going to face that if you're in a financial planning firm. The Smiths are heading out to the mountains, you know, on Friday and they want to stop by on their way. And, you know, they just called Linda. Hey, can we come in just for a quick chat and look at our, you know, statement or something? You got to get your, you got to, you know, urgency. You got to get your stuff ready. You got to prefer not, well, no, I mean, we can't, we can't meet with you. It's going to be next month. I mean, no firm is going to say that to a $4 million client. Okay. So it's um, so sense of urgency. And again, just not waiting around for someone. It's like, look, we, we really like to have this done by, uh, you know, what's my deadline Tuesday? Well, have, shoot to have the thing done by Friday, you know, or Monday or whatever it is. All right. And then the last one, which is very similar to the sense of urgency is really just taking initiative, you know, not waiting around for someone to, you know, to go to a, go through some leadership training, you know, or go get a, uh, go get an EA or go get another certification. That's partly on the career thing too. But then you come back to your supervisor in your firm and say, yeah, I, I thought that, you know, we were a little bit weak in sort of the IT stuff and you know, there wasn't really anybody here and I was having to do all the computer stuff. So I went and did a little course, little training course at the community college on, you know, basic networking. Or, you know what, we didn't, we're getting all these tax questions and, you know, I went through the H&R block preparers class, you know, just to kind of get some practice or I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get a materials to study for an EA. I mean, that's what firm owners want. They don't want to have to go to their people and say, hey, you really should think about going to that, you know, FPA retreat. You know, you, you should really think about going to that, you know, NAPFA national conference or that AICPA conference. They want their people coming to them and saying, here's what I like to go to these places. Here's how it's going to add value to, to the firm in my career. You know, it, it, I mean, to me, it goes back to that old adage that, you know, I, I always heard and, and really never appreciated until I'd hired a bunch of people in my businesses over time and had some not work out. The old saying that you you hire for attitude and train for skill. I can teach someone how to do a mortgage analysis, but... I can't teach them to care about the clients and to care about getting the answer right and to care about 
getting the answer to the client in a timely manner and recognizing that they should show a little empathy that the client's mother just died. That stuff is so much harder to to train for. Now, you need some level of kind of basic mental capabilities and critical thinking skills, which is why even you know, we, uh, we always use a version of that CFP assessment tool as well. But that first and foremost, it was about trying to find attitude, like people that are want to be professionals are serious about trying to be professionals and develop themselves as such. And it, and it, the ones who really are serious about it, it just, it pervades everything they do in the, even in the interview process with this go-getter attitude. That's really, that's really powerful. I still remember one of our, one of my first early associate planner hires was someone that, you know, we did a similar thing. We would give them this assessment and it was timed. You had, like, I think back then we, we gave them uh, two hours to do it because he was interviewing while he was still working somewhere else. He asked to do the assessment on a Friday afternoon, basically after he got off work. So, you know, first check in his box, he was willing to basically blow from 5 p.m. until 7 p.m. on a Friday afternoon just to apply for the job. And so we sent him the thing at five and he, and he sent it right back at like 6.59 for the, for the, I think it was two hours at the time. And, you know, and we went, I went and I took a look and he actually did okay, but not great. Like he missed, he missed a couple of questions. He really like one of the math questions we give is basically like build a mortgage amortization table in Excel just to, to show that you can like calculate how a mortgage amortizes down over time. And he just, he didn't have great Excel skills and didn't, didn't know the numbers well yet. He wasn't even through a CFP classes and he didn't do very well on it. But then Sunday morning at about 11 o'clock in the morning, I get another email from him that basically says, Hey, I know like the two hour thing is already long since passed. It's been two days, but I know I screwed up that mortgage problem. I ran out of time in the two hour block. That's why I sent it to you at like one minute before the the deadline, but it was still bothering me. So I've been working on it for the past couple of hours this Sunday morning. And here it is. And he sent me an updated version of the spreadsheet that he'd been working on. And the irony is that the second one was only slightly better than the first one. He actually still hadn't entirely figured out how to do it. He didn't, he just didn't have the math and and the, you know, the present value, future value, interest payment stuff. He hadn't learned any of that yet. So he, like he was really just trying to brute force it. But the sheer attitude that he was so bothered that he didn't think he'd gotten the right answer for the hypothetical client that he had to spend the rest of his weekend working on it because it just bothered him so much. Like that, that's who I want to work with. Like I can, I can teach him how to do the math problem. It's hard to make people care that way. And so we hired him. He's since had a fantastic career. He, he learned his math stuff. He's very good on his Excel spreadsheets now, but that kind of attitude focus first and, and, recognizing that you can teach the skills over time later is is pretty powerful. I love it. That's great. I mean, exa- back to the effort. That's exactly what he demonstrated. I'm wondering what else you, you look for in the process. So you had mentioned Colby and doing Colby tests as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm you know, some people may not even be familiar with, with Colby. So maybe as a starting point, just can you explain even what the, the Colby personality test is and how it gets used? Yeah, and let me correct you. It's actually not a personality test. So this is where a lot of a lot of people get this confused because there's there's really three parts of the mind. You can you can trace this all the way back to ancient philosophy and, and Aristotle and those guys. There's the affective part of the mind. Okay, just think of the mind as the software, your brain as the hardware. 
okay, the mind. So there's three parts of the mind. There's the affective, which is personality, introversion, extroversion. That's strengths finder. That's like profile XT. That's like caliper. You know, there's, there's literally thousands of, of them. And then there's the cognitive. Everybody's familiar with that. That's your just, you know, basic intelligence. And the big one for that is Wonderlick. That's what they give all the quarterback draftees going into the NFL, you know, see how quick can they read defenses and blitzes and do they have the, they have the mental horsepower to, you know, make these audibles, learn these offense, you know, stuff like that. So that there's a, there's a place for that. And then Colby, Colby measures the conative. So we've already talked about the thinking and the feeling. I mean, yeah, the thinking and the feeling. The last part is the doing. That's the conative. So you could have this brilliant, bright person who is just flaming extrovert, but they may hate details. They may, they may love putting together processes and procedures. They may hate taking last-minute uncalculated risks. Not that those are bad or good or right or wrong, but we need to know that so we can get that. I mean, it's not a good fit if I put somebody in that's preventative quick start, which means they're going to kind of, you know, pre prevent and be more of a stick with what works person. And they want to gather lots of data and details like most financial planners do. It's not going to be a good fit if I put them in a position where they're going to have to make snap decision judgments on client situations, you know, all day long without all the facts. Even if they're, you know, at the office is right next to their apartment, they're making all this money, they're eventually going to get burned out because they're going to leave the office just so unsatisfied and they're expending so much of their mental energy. That's what Colby is, is measuring. And really, they've spent millions of dollars, Colby Corp has spent millions of dollars defending their IP. So if you type in conative assessments, there's, there's really only one of them. Whereas the, the effective measure folks, you know, couldn't, didn't really do that. So now it's just kind of watered down. Interesting. And so when you look at this from the associate financial planner perspective, what, what are you looking for? Like, are there, are there particular cognitive assessments that, that work best for hiring into the financial planning business? It all depends on, we have the firm owner, the position. So we have them, I mean, there's a, there's an empirical piece to this Colby as well. So we use the A and the C and the right fit. So we'll give the firm owner, the supervisor, typically a Colby A, and that's their natural instincts. We'll also give them a Colby C, which is the supervisor's, what the supervisor thinks this person needs to have and how they need to approach things to succeed in the job. And we create a range. And then every candidate that comes through, we have them take a Colby A and we match that up against the range that we've created to see if that candidate would be a good fit. And we get a score on that candidate, you know, A to F. Interesting. So if I come to you and, and I want you to do hiring, like you're not just giving the candidates that you screen a Colby, you're going to give me a Colby test as well as the advisor that's doing the hiring. Yeah, I guess I kind of forgot to mention that. So we make the candidates go through a lot of effort, but we also make the firms go through a fair amount of effort too, because you know this is this is a this is a boutique operation. You know, we're we're very precise. We we strive to be precise here and get this stuff right. Partly because you know mine and yours rep, reputations dependent on it. So we can't have a lot of bad fits out there. And you know there is some. It's not just kind of like oh the person's got a good resume and they they kind of did okay. Let's, let's just go. I mean there is some empirical you know some some science into this as well in, in addition to some art. So so yeah I have the firms. They have to do an onboarding. They have to do. I mean again it's very similar to when they onboard a new client of their own. 
they gather data, they go back and do some analysis, and then they come back and present to the client what they ought to do. That's exactly what our process is on the recruiting side. So when I explain that to these firm owners, I mean, I think they get it. They understand what we do. You know, it's like we're going to have you on board. We're going to learn the culture. You know, you're, you're, you're Robert Half or your, you know, executive or headhunters. They don't really care about your culture. They don't really care about that. All they care about is getting some people in front of you, you know, the very first day they're under contract and hopefully they can, you know, one of them will stick and they can close you out and collect 35%. That's just not our model. You know, so we have some onboarding and some of the firm owners, again, I've had firm owners that say, screw you, Caleb, I'm not going through all this. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, well, that's fine. I mean, this is our process, because you know what? If a client walked into your door and said, what stock do I buy? What investment do I buy? Or when can I retire? There's no way you would give them an answer. You would make them go through a process. And if you won't treat me with the same and you don't you know, value that, not a fit. OK, so we don't. The point here is. We do not take every candidate that contacts us. We actually take very few. We do not take every firm that contacts us. We actually take very few. Because there's, I mean, there's an attitude piece around the, the firm as well, right? Like none of us like working with financial planning clients that aren't actually really serious about doing the planning. Because like, I mean, they may pay you some dollars, but then they basically don't take your advice and then it doesn't work out well. And then they mostly blame you for being a lousy advisor. I'm like, well, no, I... I gave you the guidance about what to do. You didn't do any of it. And eventually that's gets so frustrating. We just don't like working with clients that we, that we know aren't realistically going to, going to take the advice that we know works. And I, you know, there's certainly striking parallels to that in the recruiting and, and consulting businesses as well, that, you know, if, if, if you're not ready to do some level of introspection around what your own personal strengths and skill sets are, to try to figure out who actually should you hire that's a good complement for you that will make your business more successful. If if you're not actually serious about going through that process, I mean the the odds even that you get a hire that's going to be a good fit is is pretty much random luck. Like I mean maybe you'll stumble on someone that turns out to be a good fit, but if you if you're not even sure what you want the person to do and you don't know where your own weak spots are. It's it's pretty hard to find someone that's that's going to make your business more successful. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, just back on the Colby for a minute. I mean, we have I mean, I get clients all the time, firms that contact us and say, you know, what Caleb, what Colby should we be looking for as the best associate planner? And I have to explain to them, I mean, look, I hate giving you the typical financial planner answer of it depends, but it really does. It depends on what you need. It's your, it, you're going to be actually setting the, the parameters for us to screen on. But mo- what you have mo- in the smaller firms, what you have is an entrepreneur at the head. So long, quick start, sometimes long on the fact finder. Long means that means they want to initiate. So they want to gather data. They want to you know, take a lot of uh, uncalculated risks innovating, iterating, that type of thing. They're pretty low on follow through, which is development of processes and procedures. So a lot of times for the second, the right hand, you know, man or woman, the second chair, they're shooting for somebody who is lower on quick start than they are. And then, but higher on the follow through and probably is equal or higher on the, the uh, fact finder, just because they know that that way they're detail oriented, they're process oriented, and they're not going to be wanting to change things up all the time because, and that's a good compliment to a firm owner because what, a lot of times what you get you have is, you know, if you have all these long quick starts, 
everybody, I mean, just think of a Silicon Valley. Everybody wants to change things all the time, but no one's ever get, actually getting the work done. Colby's a delicate tool. I mean, it's powerful, but you need to be careful on, on what you're doing. I get a lot of firms that say, well, we, I just want someone that's a long, quick start like me. And I say, oh, really? Okay. You left your firm 15 years ago and you started your own firm. You, and you just told me you didn't want someone to leave your firm and start your own. Are you sure you want someone like you? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I want him to stay the whole time. I don't ever want him to leave. I'm like, okay, hold on a second here. The, the, the more entrepreneurial and the longer, and that just means people are willing to, you know, just take a lot more risk and stuff. So it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go over here and go to this robo-advisor. I'll try that out. You got to be careful what you ask for. There's an important point there that I think is is missed a lot that – the number of firms I see that like that say I, I I just wish I could get people that were were more entrepreneurial and more independent thinkers like I am because you know it, it it made the business work for me and and I and I wish I could hire more of them and the number of times I had to point them like you realize you don't work for anyone like you're not an employee have you ever thought about why like well because I like to do my own thing and I, I don't like to take directions from my from my boss that's why I decided to be my own boss and make my own advisory firm it's like right so. Why do you think the mini you version of you would be any more happy with the job than the one that you didn't take for yourself because you went out on your own because you were independent entrepreneurial and that's what happens. And and just recognizing that split, like if you really want a hardcore independent minded entrepreneur, they're probably going to have to be your partner and not your employee because if they're that entrepreneurially driven, they're not going to they're not going to be satisfied with anything less than ownership the same way that you felt when you left your employee job and went out to be independent as an entrepreneur. So you, there, there's a there's a trade-off there that if you want people that are going to be happy in employee roles and be a part of the business, but but not try to go out and make their own, that means they may be a little bit less entrepreneurial. And and if and that's okay because you can be the entrepreneur in your business. Even more effective when you when you let go of some of the other stuff. You know, I've been reading a book lately called Rocket Fuel. It is a it's a book by some business consultants, Gino Wickman and and Mark Winters. And the basic thesis of the book is that you know, most really successful businesses actually work not with individual leaders, but with what with pairs. One who's a visionary, and the other one who is what they call the integrator. That's basically the get the stuff actually done behind the scenes to make sure the business runs. So like everybody knows Walt Disney. Walt was actually a horrible business owner and repeatedly ran the business into the ground. His brother Roy was the one that actually ha figured out how to turn the thing into a business and made it into the the empire that it is. And, and not to take away from Walt, like Roy wouldn't have had anything to build if Walt hadn't set this this vision. But you know it, it took a number two support person to be able to make the vision of the visionary come to life. And what that means for a lot of entrepreneurs, like you don't need more mini entrepreneurs in your business. You need integrators and executors who can help take your vision and put it into action so that you can then iterate more on your vision. For the reality of most of these firms, I mean, every firm that contacts me, and I mean, again, this is our business model, but they are overwhelmed with clients. I mean, it's, they're just, they're drowning in clients. And mo what most of them need is I just need someone to get in here and take some of these clients off of me that I can work with and I can train and they can just do, do the now, do all this time consuming 
stuff that is financial planning. And for that type of role, you want you more like the, the Colby MO, like the strategic planner type, the longer quick, the longer preventative quick start and the longer follow through and, and fact finder. And that works really well if you have a lot of those people surrounding the primary rainmaker or the entrepreneur. Now, where we get into some muddy, mudding of the waters is, well, you know, well, I, I want someone about, you know, people that are preventative quick start, I mean, they can't bring in any business. They're, they're not, they're horrible at business development. If I retire and I what what's going to happen? I want them to start, you know, bringing in business to, comp, comp, you know, cover their salary. You know, so I need to go out here and hire. It's like, well, hold, hold on a second here. I mean, just because they're preventative, preventative, just because they're introverted, this is one that I get all the time. I don't want any introverts. They suck. They can't bring in any business. They can't do anything. You know, it's like, you you just told me ten minutes ago that your business is swamped with clients. Why are you worried about bringing in business right now? One, you're contradicting yourself. But two, just because you're an introvert and you're preventative, you're not that green bar is not you know accommodating or initiating. That does not mean you cannot be successful as as a business owner or a business developer. It just means you have a different style, approach, and strategy. That's all it means. Instead of blasting into the, you know, the VP of sales blasting into a, you know, marketing uh, event, you know, networking event and talking to all 200 people, it's like, no, I'm just going to focus on this little target over here. I'm going to develop deep, meaningful relationship with these people. And you know what? It may take them a year to refer somebody, but when they do, it's going to be good and it's going to work out. I just look at this from my own perspective. I'm a, you give me any of those personality tests. I'm an extremely high scoring introvert. Notwithstanding the fact that I'm a, I do a lot of public speaking, like I do a lot of public speaking and I got to hang out in my room for an hour at the end of the evening and just, just recharge. Cause you know, as much as I enjoy a lot of parts of, of interacting with conferences, like I'm an introvert and it, it doesn't give me energy. It, it, it kind of uses the energy that I then have to have to rest and recharge and regain. And, you know, you put me through a Colby and I'm a, you know, no great surprise. I, I score like a nine out of 10 on fact finding as my, as my primary driver. And, and I'm a, I'm a score. I score three in quick start. I'm, I'm a very, I'm an introverted low quick start. That's a serial entrepreneur made a whole bunch of businesses, but, but I don't make them like other people do, right? Like it, it's not that I can't bring in business and grow it. It's that I do it differently. And I loathe cold calling and and cold approach talks and all those things that a lot of my introverted advisor friends thrive on. You know, we just, we, we grow and develop businesses differently. So what does it take then for hiring this kind of talent? You, you, you see, you do the hiring for firms all over the country. You see job offers that go out all over the country. So from your perspective on the ground, what, what is the going rate at this point for good associate financial planners? Like if I'm a firm owner, what realistically do I need to be prepared to, to offer and pay for if I, if I want to get some good talent in the door? Yeah, comp and benefits are certainly important part of the equation, but I really think it comes back to more of the intangibles. I mean, that's what the candidates with high degrees of uh, emotional intelligence have. I mean, it's, they want to know, has the firm been growing the last few years, what its future predicted growth rate, projected growth rate is. Most of the firms we work with are growing anywhere from 10 to 30% a year. So they're, they're bringing a lot of clients, a lot of assets. 
hence why they need to you know call us and, and hire people cutting edge technology that that's becoming more of a table stake though i mean just because now you've you know a 40 million dollar firm can you know can essentially get you know a lot of the same technology a billion dollar firm can so that's kind of even the playing field out i i think it's worth making a note on that about just how the technology you use in your firm impacts your ability to hire. One of the most common concerns I actually hear these days from candidates that are looking at prospective jobs is when they hit financial planning firms that either don't use financial planning software or they use outdated tools that that aren't very popular anymore or like they build all their own Excel spreadsheets to do their stuff. I've had a lot of conversations with the candidates that basically say, I'm afraid if I take the job with this advisory firm that built their own financial planning spreadsheets, it's going to hurt my career future job options because if I ever have to leave the firm, I have no experience in any recognized financial planning software. And I don't think a lot of firms necessarily have thought about that reality that when a lot of young people are coming in and they're trying to assess, you know, even if they think in good faith they're going to stay with the firm, we all know that like it might not work out. And when you're not using standard industry tools, it actually puts you at a detriment for particularly the most ambitious and upwardly mobile kinds of talent that you would want, because they're actually concerned that they're not going to learn productive job skills in your firm if you're not transferable job skills in your firm, if you're using your own proprietary tools and not, not some industry standard software. Yeah, I ran into a candidate. Well, we get them all the time, but just recently that basically was sharing, you know, look, we've somebody developed these spreadsheets or these, you know, planning reports 30 years ago. And other than just kind of minor tax updates and things, we haven't changed them. I mean, that's, that is not what the top candidates are looking for. And that's not going to get, and what I tell firms is, look, I mean, because once someone's been doing something for a long time, it's just human nature. You're not really going to change. So getting firm owners to, change, I think, is, is is very difficult, just like getting clients to change their behavior. And what I tell them is, look, it's fine. You don't have to change, but do not expect the number one draft pick. Do not expect the A-plus player because I can get you somebody that's a B-minus player, you know, C-plus player, and they're going to do great. You may not want them, but so you have to have a you know, compelling opportunity. So technology, growing firm, you know, collaborative culture, you know, someone that's going to send you out to these conferences, it's like, come, you know, come back with, you know, four or five ideas on new software, new technology we can use and new client strategies we can implement. Not like, oh, no, no, don't bring these ideas back because we, we, we kind of got a good thing going here. We don't want to change anything. <laughs> so, you know, that and then the common benefit piece, I mean, yeah, it's there. But again, I think even before that, it's the candidates that we work with know they don't, they, they know what they don't know. All right. So I need somebody to teach me how to do this stuff that you're doing. Yeah, I've been in this firm over here for three years, but it was a crappy firm. They don't, they didn't, do, they didn't do good planning. So, you know, I know you put three year, you wanted three years on the the job description. Well, I've been in the business three years, but really, I don't think I have three years of experience. And I'm being upfront with that. I need you to teach me how you do it because you're doing it right. And if you'll mentor me and you will let me get in here and do this grunt work and let me sit in some of the client meetings and present some of this stuff, that's what these people are looking for. You know, above you know, comp and benefits. Now, what about the comp and benefits itself, though? I, I Is there some going rate at this point? Like if you want to get a, a reasonable associate planner, you got to be ready to pay 
40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or like what kinds of offers are you seeing that actually capture people or, or if they vary, like what, what makes them vary? Like what are the factors? Yeah. That, so a nationwide average for new college grad is about 50,000. Okay. So that's, that's including all size firms, expensive zip codes, non-expensive zip codes. Okay. So about, about, about 50 K for that plus some bonus and some, health insurance, and then a retirement plan. Okay. That's, and usually bonus is between 10 and 20% of whatever their base salary is. So, so they can get all into about 55 or 60 because the base salary is 50. That's right. You know, and again, some of your lower cost of living people, you know, will, will be lower than that. Some of the, you know, I've seen candidates or uh, people get in bidding wars, you know, in some of these higher cost of living, you know, new college grad, 65,000. I'm kind of scratching my way. Where was that when I was trying to get a job? I had to pay somebody to get hired. And then so for someone that's, you know, maybe been out a couple of years, you know, probably 60 is kind of base. Somebody that's a CFP, so they've been out three years, they could be 25, pass the exam when they were 22, they could be 24, 25. You know, that's about 70 to 75 is kind of the minimum, at least in the higher cost of living areas, like your San Francisco, your DC, your New York City, plus, you know, about another 10 to 20% in bonus, and then health. And and I mean, then these are, I mean, what are the qualifications for someone to get a, a number like that? I mean, that's just, that's an undergrad degree, that's an undergrad degree with a couple of financial planning classes is that uh, they're done with their CFP and have the marks. What does it take to actually get get that number? Because I'm just like, I'm sure there are a few people are thinking back to what their starting salary was with a bachelor degree and being and, and thinking like, you're going to pay how much for for a new grad these days? Yeah, well, I'm giving you the hierarchy. So 50k for a 50k for a new college grad, someone who's been out in the business for two or three years, maybe has passed their exam, they're probably going to be in the 60 to 65, maybe 70 range, again, depending on where they are. So just think like, here are the bands, 50, 50, 60, and then like 60 to 70. All right. And that's where the, that's where the CFPs are going to be like in that 70 K range, at least in the higher cost. I mean, I had a CFP in Indiana that contacted me. She was making like $48,000 a year. And that was one of the reasons why she reached out to me. There was others because again, I, if a candidate reaches out to me and says, Caleb, look, I'm making 63,000 over here. And man, I, I saw one of your job postings and I'm calling you. Can you, do you think you can get me 65, 66, 70? No dice, no dice. Candidate leads with that because again, if they're going to come work for you for another three or four grand, Somebody else is going to offer them three or four grand two years from now, and they're going to take it. That's not. That goes back to our attitude thing. That's not a good good way to hire. So, I mean, just think of it this way: for a CFP, so this could be someone as young as 25 or 24, because right now, if you pass the exam when you're 22 and you get an apprenticeship model, you're 24 years old. You have a CFP, two years of experience. I mean, you could be making seventy, seventy-five thousand, depending on what market and what size of firm you're going to. Does it get noticeably lower when you get to lower cost of living areas? Like you mentioned someone in Indiana and you know, some parts of the country are even lower cost of living. Like is 40 to 45 or 35 to 45 still fair in, in some lower cost of living areas or how, how low do you see it yet? No, no candidate's going to work for less than 3000 $3, a month. So 36 is probably going to be the rock bottom. And you know, I've, I, you know, some people, you know, Tennessee, Alabama, you know, I've seen some of that stuff pop up, you know, we'll have firms contact me and I'll ask them, you know, what do you plan on paying this person? Like, well, 31. I'm like, I, I'm sorry. I, I 
I don't think I can get anybody interested in that, you know, and they, you know, sometimes they work with us and they have to adjust their comp, but sometimes they don't because they don't want to pay anymore. And again, that's, that's back to how I screen the firms. If a firm contacts me and is like, man, I, and I'm all, I'm a small business owner. I'm all about maximizing profitability. But if you're going into it, like, I just want to pay the person as least as possible. That is not the attitude that we're looking for in a firm owner. The firm owners that I'm looking for and I want to work with and we've had success and who our clients are, are the people who are like, look, I'm growing. I'm making a good income. I put in the time. I busted my butt. I've done this. We built this. Now it's up to me to bring in the next generation, bring it so I can have a better quality of life. I can do this. I'm tired of work. I mean, I get this all the time. Caleb, I'm just tired of working so much. Tired of working is hard. I want to get somebody else in here. And I want to, I mean, I want to pay, you know, what I'll do is I'll take these salary surveys or I'll take whatever you say, give me a couple numbers and, you know, we'll, we'll average that and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pay 20% more or something. You know, and that's the type of people that I'm looking for. We're going to pay in the top, you know, quartile or something. But we're also, we're going to give them training and mentoring, or maybe we're not going to pay top dollar, but I'm going to pour everything I have into this candidate, their time here. So they're going to know how to do everything in our firm in 18 months. I mean, that is a compelling opportunity that we can get people excited about. Well, and I, again, I think it's important to note, I, I hear so many firms that like they don't want to hire any of these people because they're not bringing revenue. And that you have to remember, like if you're if you're in this position where you're hitting your capacity, and you've got this limit in your business, the path forward is not hiring necessarily other advisors who are going to bring books of business. The path forward is hiring an associate advisor and transitioning your clients to them, so you have capacity to bring in more business. Because a, you're good at it since you got the business to where it is, and b. You own it. So you have a good incentive to keep growing the business. You're trying to bring in people out of books of business and already and bring revenue and want to be employees, you know, like often isn't realistic. If they were that good at bringing in people, they wouldn't want to be your employee usually. Or if they are, they're going to negotiate a deal that looks more like they get all their client revenue anyways, and you're just their back office platform. And and you can run a back office platform business, but basically now you you're you're turning your advisory firm into a glorified TAMP for independent advisors who happen to affiliate with you. So at least know if that's the business you want to build, if, if that's the road that you're going to go down. But otherwise, you know, it's not about bringing in advisors that bring revenue. It's about bringing in advisors that can create capacity for you so that you can go generate revenue because that's what you were good at as the business owner to get it to the point of capacity. And that's frankly what benefits you the most financially because you're the business owner. And, and you benefit from the, the business getting bigger from all those clients very directly. I think a lot of times they're just scared of taking on the extra costs, you know. And what I would say to that is if you're growing, you know, hiring is always more scary than it really turns out to be. And ultimately, it still just keeps coming back to you are the one that tends to drive making the business bigger. So, man, it, you know, do the things that let you be more productive in making your business bigger. To shift tracks a little bit, I'm curious about your your own story of what brought you in you, you to to the financial planning world. You said you you joined the FPA when you were 20 and and still in college. So, I mean, like, were your parents in financial planning, and you just always had this vision that you were going to be a, a financial planner and go down this road, or or how did you arrive at the point of being a 20 year old that joined the FPA? 
Yeah, I was at, from Texas originally, and I went to Texas Tech to go get a finance degree and was over there for two years and absolutely hated it. By stroke of luck, happened to meet the dean of the, uh, or the department head of the financial planning program at a university I was attending and wasn't even aware of it because it wasn't in the business program and switched my major shortly after that. And I looked around, I knew I was in the right place. Remember, this is the late 90s, early 2000, when I was in my first class and I looked to the person to the left of me and I said, you know, who are you? You know, what's, what's, uh, what's your story? Oh, my, my, I, I'm from you know, Denver, Colorado. My parents are financial planners. I'm like, well, why did they send you here? Well, this is the best program. And I looked, looked to the right, you know, some, a bunch of people in there had that story. I was like, okay, I think I'm in the right place. And I just happened to, to fall into it. But that's what everybody did. You just, that was kind of a fait accompli. It's like, you're over here. We're serious about the profession. You're going to join the student. You know, we strongly suggest you join the student chapter of the FPA and become a student member. And I think at that point it was like 30 bucks a year, 25 bucks a year or something. And so when I get these people that say, you know, I think it's like maybe 50 now or something when they say they can't afford it, I just, I'm just like, really? Okay. I mean, that's, you know, that's a couple Starbucks drinks right there. I mean, you burn through that and it's easy. And then I completed that. I started my career in California in the Bay Area. I did a four month internship out there. Very good experience. I mean, it was it was a nightmare trying to get the internship. I had to get an internship to graduate. So now a lot of the programs have said, well, an internship is, is voluntary or, you know, whatever, or we're, they're removing the requirement altogether. If I didn't get an internship, I didn't graduate. I had to stay another year. So the pressure was on. And this is right after this is right after the 9-11 you know, attack. So it's like, you know, I'm calling firms up and they're saying, okay, look, we, we love what you sent. We love your stuff, but you know, our revenue, bud, our revenue's down 30%. <laughs> We're not going to bring you on, even if it's 10 bucks an hour. We're not going to bring you on, man. But I was finally able to connect with Norm Boone in San Francisco. And I was looking for a place that I said, you know what, even if my internship sucks, I want to be in a good place that I can have a fun summer in, and San Francisco was a good fit, and I had a cousin that lived in Berkeley and thought I'd get to stay with her. But anyways, Norm said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hire you. I've already committed to someone, and that, that someone happened to be Serena Lowell, who now is the COO of the firm. <laughs> so so that was a real good choice on Norm's part. So I lost out to Sabrina, but he said, I like what you sent. I don't know you. We, we've only spoken by email. I like what you sent. I like the follow-up. Here's the people in my study group. Here are their names and numbers. Call them, use my name. One of them was Larry Ginsburg. One of them was Craig Friedman. I mean, these are all, you know, big players out there. And in short, you know, long story short, I ended up getting a job, uh, internship with Larry, and it was a good experience and got to know Greg and a lot of those people out there and then went back and spoke at, you know, keep speaking and attending the FPA NorCal conference. But, you know, that was great. I came back and finished my last semester. And then here it's like, okay, what do I do now? I got to get a job. You know, market still is tanked. I'm trying to convince somebody to pay me a salary and I have no I have no book of business. I have a good education, but very little tangible value add to this person. So, you know, I, I just started networking and contacted all the people that came and spoke when I was a student. And I connected with one of the, the past presidents of the FPA of Dallas-Fort Worth. And he gave me some contacts and I went on some interviews and it really, I, I wasn't liking what I was getting. Then I started getting desperate and kind of started hearing what I wanted to hear. And I was calling him and he said, 
he said, man, be, be careful that you're not hearing what you want to hear. And then he, you know, after I guess just kind of, I don't know if he felt sorry for me or just hearing my agony, he said, you know what, my, I just started my firm, but if you can hold off until later this year, you know, there might be an opportunity here. So I got really excited about that. I decided to stay at, at where I was living in Texas and study for the CFP exam and then get that out of the way and then, you know, look at uh, joining that firm. But, you know, again, to make a, another long story really short, I ended up getting a job with him. And the reason why I did, because I was not the best candidate. There was like two or three other people that I was going head to head against from my same program. But I found out that in, through our interviews that he was using, at that point, it was called Navaplan, now Navisent Software. And I was living in Lubbock, Texas at the time. The, the firm was in Dallas. Okay, that's where I'm, I'm from. And I, I, I went to the website to download a free 30-day trial. I got the free 30-day trial just to kind of play around with some stuff and say, so I could go back to him and say, look, I'm ready to hit the ground running on this Navaplan. I found out there was a two-day training course in Dallas. They were coming down from Canada. They were going to do their two-day training course, $250 a day. It was going to cost me $500. So I pulled out, you know, don't, you know, hope Dave Ramsey never listens to this, but I had to pull out two, you know, my credit card and put 500 bucks on it. Took a couple days off work, drove down there, went to the training class. I had no idea what I was doing. I was the youngest one in there by 20 years. But I saw a lot of the person I was interviewing with, Brian was his name, his colleagues, and word got back to him that I attended this software training program without having any job offer or any guarantee or anything. And he said, let's do it. I'm hiring you. And he told me later, he said, look, you were not the best candidate. You know, you were not the best candidate, but no one else took that initiative. And I knew I had to take that initiative because I knew I wasn't the best candidate, you know, so I had to really work on it and just, you know, scrapping and, you know, just kind of the effort, you know, demonstrating effort and, you know, joined him. And, you know, we, he, he was 30 years old. I was 22 or 23 at the time. I mean, we had, you know, less than 10 clients and, you know, not a lot of assets. And, you know, he basically took out a personal line of credit, uh, personally guaranteed to pay me a couple grand a month to run the business and do most of the stuff while he brought in the clients. And, that worked. I mean, I was there five and a half years and my wife wanted to get a PhD. So we moved to Florida. It's a heck of a, a leap you took. I guess it, it makes the point again, right, of of you hire an associate planner so that they can do the, you know, the, the integrating work in the firm so that you can go get more business and generate more revenue to pay for it. That's how it's done when it works well. So how long were you in that firm? Like how long did you go down that road? I was there five and a half years. I think when I when I left, we had about fifty clients, a little over fifty million in assets, or something like that. So I mean, it was I was there. I helped. I mean, I, I remember bringing on the assets four or five hundred thousand dollars at a time. And and I know, you know, this 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 is. You know, I know we've talked about this before, but maybe for everybody else's, you know, I was twenty two or twenty three. He was thirty. All of our clients were in their thirties and forties. We had a couple people in their sixties. No one was withdrawing from their portfolio yet. So all this like XY planning and stuff, I mean, we were doing that a long time ago. And we charged a little differently. We weren't doing the monthly retainer, but we were just, what we did is we went around to all these firms in Dallas that had these million dollar, $500,000 minimums and said, send us the people that don't 
fit your minimum. So what we ended out with was all these 30-year-old doctors, 32, 34-year-old doctors that had like two dollars and $300,000 in income, and they also had $150,000 in student loan, and these established firms in Dallas couldn't, char- you know, couldn't manage a million dollars and charge 1%, so they said, forget it. We don't want to work with you. So they referred them to us, and that worked out. Well, and I, and I still say a lot to newer advisors that are getting started and trying to figure out like where, where do they go, how do they get going, how do they they what should they do to get some of their first clients going? And I tell them like put it kindly, take the castoffs from the other firms in your area. Like there there are already plenty of experienced advisors out there who are talking to people that would be great prospects for you. They just don't have the time and the inclination to to do this and if you would just just reach out to them and say like, hey, I know you feel bad when you have to turn people away that don't meet your minimums. Well, I serve people that don't meet your minimums and they may not be great clients to, to you, but they're great clients to me and I'm going to serve them really well. And I, you know, I love you just to keep me in mind if if this person isn't a good fit for you. And you can you can get a lot of business that way from other advisors by working with the people that they don't work with. Well, and let me kind of just add one thing. I mean, I I think I think my that that philosophy probably won't work as well now as it did in the past because what I'm seeing a lot now is as firms have gotten bigger, they're saying, "Wait a minute here, this this hold on a second here, this doctor, you know, I've got two ortho surgeons or an ortho and a, a OBGYN combined income is four hundred thousand dollars a year. They've got two hundred fifty thousand in debt, but." You know, at $400,000 a year, if we can keep their spending under control, it's not going to be a long time before they're a million-dollar client. So let's get that business. And I think, they're, you know, you see it all the time, merging affluent divisions. We're going to charge a lower fee and try to turn them into the next generation. But it's great because they're hiring associate planners to handle those people. So it's it's paying it forward and it's working out. But I think for your solo sort of random, you know, hanging shingle person, it's going to be hard to get those people to send the referrals. Yeah, you certainly have to. You'll probably have to knock on more doors than you had to in the past. Very true. A lot of a lot of firms are starting to insource this now. Although I, st- I still see some that it's like, hey, we we work with our our affluent retirees. They move good dollars. It works for our firm. Ten thousand baby boomers a day are still turning sixty two for many years to come. And they're like, eh, we just we're we're hanging out there. We're not we're not taking the people that aren't a fit. As you look forward from here, you it strikes me that there are a lot of parallels between what you do in a recruiting business and what the advisors that you now serve do in in their businesses, right? Because you, you start out doing everything, right? We do all the advising and everything else and all the back office for our clients and, and you have to do the same thing in recruiting. And as the business grows and you start hiring associate planners or in, in, in new plan recruiting associate recruiters, the team starts to build out. And so- I'm wondering if you can just talk from your perspective as the as the business owner, as the founder. What was it like when you launched the business and and what does it look like now? Like how has that evolution been for you as opposed to the advisors that you work with? Yeah, when I when I first started it was it was scary. You know, I didn't know if the concept was gonna work. I had people telling me I was an idiot, and I had a few people telling me they thought it was a good idea and so just plowed ahead with it, but I had to do everything. I mean, I had to learn a lot. Before that, I was really more of an employee situation, like at the other firm. And even though I was involved in everything, I, I wasn't the owner. And 
So it was a good exercise for me to, you know, I mean, just getting all the documents set up and all the financials and then coming up with a, a marketing plan, all this type of stuff. I mean, it was a great, it was a lot of fun, a lot of work. And I was having to do, you know, recruiting a lot like financial planning is just hard work. I mean, it's just time intensive, hard work. It's not, you know, again, we're not doing rocket science. This is not, you know, advanced calculus. I mean, it's just, you know, trying to understand these people and deal with their emotions and their temperament. I mean, that's, that's, you know, difficult stuff, but in a different way, but just, I was having to find the people, place the people, screen the people, bring in the business all on my own. And, you know, I just, after a couple of years that I'm like, look, I, you know, I'm making some money, but I, I want to be able to touch more people. The whole reason that, that I really wanted to start the recruiting business is because when I was at the financial plan firm, we had 50 clients and they were awesome. I, I knew all their kids. I'd been to all their businesses. I'd been to their homes. A lot of times I had their addresses memorized because I dealt with them so much. I mean, I was ingrained in these people's lives, which is, which is very sticky and why they had no problem paying us. But I was only able to touch and help 50 people. And I said, what, you know, that, that's good, but that's not good enough. So the recruiting business, now I'm able to help three groups of people, three distinct, distinct groups. One is firm owners get a new quality hire, help them grow their business, help them do whatever they want, find a successor, play more golf, whatever it is. I'm able to help job seekers get into this profession because it's so rewarding and it's the best thing out there. I've never done anything else. I don't have anything to compare to. It's the best thing out there. I don't need to do anything else. And then eventually, the more people, the candidates that I can get placed and the more firms I can help, the more Americans will have access to financial planning. And that's an exponential number. That's not going to be able, I'm not going to be able to measure that. So that is really exciting. And that's what gets me up and keeps me trying to move this needle on this profession. So when I was doing it by myself and I'm only able to do, you know, you know not that many placements a year, I made the decision, look, I need to hire someone to free me up to do all these lower level tasks that I shouldn't be dealing with. I should be out there getting business and talking to firms about why they should use us and also about their, you know, the candidates that we presented. You know, here's why they're a good fit. Here's why they're not, because I'm good at that. So, and I realized I was good at that. And I had firm owners telling me, and I said, you know, this is, you know, a neat thing that you started up and a skill that you've developed. So let's capitalize on that. And that's something I've always set out to be is in job security. It's like, try to be a subject matter expert in something. So if you're a planner out there, a planner candidate, you know, maybe it's college planning. You just came out of school, you know, FAFSA, you know, student loans, you know, you know, 529 plans, something because coming out and saying, look, I'm an investment expert. I'm sorry. That's not going to get you anywhere. Okay. So everybody is, is an investment expert. So subject matter expert, and then I, I made my first hire, let's see, maybe that was 11, was a remote sort of stay-at-home mom part-time thing. She was doing some research for me. Then when I moved the, the office here, when well, my wife got the job at University of Georgia, and we moved headquarters to Athens, Georgia, where we are now, I hired a guy out of the CFP program. He was a sophomore, and he worked here for almost two years, and he freed me up immensely. I mean, I had to train him. I didn't have to pay him a whole lot. He, he loved the hours and loved the flexibility. And I was able to focus and do the things I wanted to. And it was just so empowering. I mean, I was still having to do everything. And I said, you know what, this, this is going to continue to work, but I want, to, I want more because I really want to have, not only do I want to help more people, 
I want to have some sort of business that lasts beyond me and is bigger than bigger than me. You notice we didn't name the firm Caleb and Michael Recruiting or Caleb Brown Recruiting Services. That's not what we're about because it's not about me. But the challenge is if I'm the one that's out there and everybody knows me, it can quickly become about me. And I see the challenges that these firm owners have now that I'm on the other side. And it's I'm very appreciative of this experience because you know, someone who's built their firm from zero and now they're successful, I know why they don't want to retire. It is their identity. Just look at Michael Jordan. That's why he couldn't retire. Look at Brett Favre. It's their identity. I'm getting that now because to, to, to build the business up, it's got to be about you. So now my goal is with this team that I have now is to dump everything I can, you know, developing them, dump everything I, I know uh, into them so they can you know, they can, I can move into more of managing the recruiting business versus being the recruiter because I think that's where I can help take the firm to the next level because I can't do it everything. I can't work with all the clients. I can't work with all the – interview all the candidates. And I tell you, Michael, it's been a little – there has been days where I'm like, oh, man, I'll just, I'm just going to do this. And I have to tell myself, no, don't do it. Let them do it. Because if you, you where's it going to stop? If you try to get back in and take this over, yeah, did they say something that you probably could have said? I mean, did they say something differently? Yeah, it, but it's okay. It's okay. So there's that control issue and that identity issue. I'm having to go through the same thing, and I'm less than 10 years into this thing. So, I mean, I get it for these people that have been doing it for 40 years. What is your typical day or maybe week look like for you at, at, at this point? And just as as someone that manages a team of four people and running a successful and growing business, like how do you, how do you manage your, your time through the day and the week? And I'll just make a note here because I think this is an important connotation, but managing four people, none of them are in this home office. They're all spread out. I got it. So all of your staff is virtual. All of them are virtual. And actually two of them I haven't ever met. I hired them virtually, you know, over video and, and that type of stuff. And so that's managing people in general is a challenge. Managing people virtually is another challenge. Managing people you've never met really in person, that's another level of challenge. So, it's, and I'm still figuring it out and working on it, but it's a lot of fun because it, the way we work is people are going to have to work. I mean, if I can let them work remotely, I have a whole bigger, I just have a much wider swath of candidates to choose from. But my, my day-to-day is really, I'm focused on two things, you know, building the brand, protecting the brand, really three, business development, you know, bringing in, bringing in clients and getting them excited about what we're doing and telling the story and making sure our clients are happy. So client satisfaction and we're having a, and, and then really kind of quality control. You know, I do some final interviews to make sure that the people that are coming through can meet our clients expectations and you know and i and and part of it too is like you know i i like getting on the phone and doing these final video calls with the candidates because i like giving them the advice and i like helping them and you know whether we get in place with one of our clients or not i want them to be successful in the profession and if they go through our screening process they can because i'm going to find something that they can work on very cool so as we as we come to the the tail end of the podcast here. You know, I actually have two questions. One, having started out the business on on your own and done that grinding process up to the point where you have four team members, I'm sure you've hit challenge points along the way 
it, it's kind of inevitable as an entrepreneur that grows a business. And and so I'm wondering, what do you do to get through the inevitable difficult times that crop up in the in the world of business ownership? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I have a lot of good mentors that I've had over my uh, my career. I work with a coach. You know, I, I look at business like a, like a business and, business coach, executive coach. You got it, business coach. Anyone you'd recommend for uh, any listeners on the podcast? Yeah, Paul Brown, Brownstone Consulting. I'm sorry, Brownstone Advisors out in Washington. I've worked with him. He's he's helped me. He um, he knows the business. He used to work with Mark Tabersian and those guys at Moss Adams. So he understands the business, you know, and, and help me think more because I remember I'm in the day-to-day recruiting grind, but I have, I have to take that hat off and then put the manager CEO hat on. And that was a difficult transition for me. And he forced me to do that and held me accountable. And, you know, uh, and, and a lot of those type of avenues and just challenged me to think about things differently. And I was just able to bounce ideas off, but I mean, I've, you know, I've made mistakes, but I mean, I think it's, you know, two, you got me on this one. I mean, it's, I've never shared this before, but I guess I will here because I think this has helped shape my experiences. But when 1983, when I was a little kid, a Doberman pincher basically had my head in its mouth and I end up surviving that. And I still have a scar for the people that know me. I lost a lot of my hair, but they can see the scar. So that was in 83. And then in November 5th, 2009, I was at Fort Hood, Texas, giving a thrift savings plan presentation. It wasn't my building, but it was it was really too damn close. The the, the terrorist attack. So I look at that and I'm like, man, I'm I'm probably not even supposed to be here. So these challenges that I run into with my business and you know, clients are upset or somebody didn't pay us or candidates aren't very good or not doing what they should be doing or you know staff we're having trouble with them or you know revenues not where it should be or you know number now you know when i think of it in terms of those two incidences i mean it's it really puts things in perspective like you know what that really doesn't matter a whole lot so as you look forward from here you know, this is a show about success and and one of the things we always end up talking about in every episode is that success means different things to different people about what it is that they they want to accomplish with the with their business and just with the the time they're given on earth. And so you know, as 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 New Planner Recruiting continues to grow and build from here and you've got uh four staff members and you're and you're reaching more and more advisors to work with them, like what does success look like for you over the next five to ten years? Like where are you trying to get the the business from here and and how do you think about what what success means? Yeah, for, for for me, success means being able to do what I want to do, how I want to do it. And I mean, we're I'm I'm you know, I'm, I'm not there yet, but I've made a lot of strides, you know, in the last ten ten years or so. You know, I think in in maybe the next ten years, let's say I was working when I first started the firm, a hundred percent in the business and zero percent on the business. <laughs> okay, it's, it sounds horrible, but that's the reality. Now I'm working 50% in the business and 50% on the business because I have this team that takes a lot of stuff off me and does a lot of the heavy lifting. Well, in 10 years, I, I want to be 100% or, or maybe 99, 99% on the business, maybe 1% in the business. I mean, I want my team to be so good 
they're kind of like, hey, Caleb, we, you know, yeah, go, you know, stay out that golf trip a little longer. We don't, we, we're good here. We don't really, need, we don't need you. And that's sort of my end game to get these people and really the training because this is the same philosophy I have with all the candidates that we work with. I want them to be the top financial planners at their firm. Okay, like these people here in our in our team, it's my job to get them to my level and above. All right, by dumping everything and teaching everything to them that I know. The only issue is I have a 15 year head start on them, so you know they've got some they've got some ramp up time. But as long as they keep working hard and are open to constructive criticisms and mentorship and my lofty goals. You know, we can we can get there, but I want a business that provides a good income for them, that moves the needle in terms of placements and de- and developing and, and future workforce, you know, finding successors for these people because, and then after I'm long gone, you know, the business is still going. Yeah, we're still helping people find, you know, quality, quality placements, quality staff members. Well, very cool. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story and that vision for our listeners in the podcast, hopefully a few people feel in, in inspired to help work with you on, on moving that vision forward. And again, there's so much opportunity in our, in our advisory world. To me, it's a, it's a very exciting time for our industry as much as it's challenging with all the change that's going on. You know, as I view it, we're, we're transitioning from our sales roots into an actual profession of advisors. And so it's a tremendous opportunity for those that are, are ready to take up that challenge going forward. Incredible opportunity for people coming into business today. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.